Welcome. This is about the, uh, I don't know, 24th, 25th talk on this same theme. And I'll keep going until I draw a blank. Uh, the theme is self-knowing, a quiet passion. Uh, how many people have heard um, at least one of these talks? You're really going to be bored tonight. Okay. <laughs> I want new people who have never heard this stuff. Okay. See, when you give that many talks, you can't remember everything that you said. Uh, anecdotes, jokes, you keep repeating yourself, and so it's embarrassing. Um, what I've been doing and what I'd like to do tonight is uh, reviewing this, what I consider a very, very basic way of looking at what we do, uh, having to do with, with self-knowing, more commonly called self-knowledge, knowing yourself. Uh, to review some of the nuances of that, uh, and also of quiet passion, and uh, each time I attempt to add uh, something else, different examples, and more uh, nuance uh, that uh, perhaps helps us understand this. And then I look forward to the Q&A, because I really uh, like to apply. If these teachings are helpful, then I'd like the opportunity to uh, hear what your questions are about and to to see if any of this can be of use in your life. Uh, Self-knowing. Is about essentially knowing your mind. Uh, Without looking at your mind, it is impossible to really understand what the Buddha is talking about. You can read all of the the teachings of the Buddha and get a PhD in it, and people do. But you won't really know what the Buddha is talking about, because um, unless you start reading perhaps the most important book, the book of you, book of me, and that is to get to know this mind. And mind here doesn't mean just thinking. It's consciousness. It's the full range of emotion, thought, image-making, memory, planning, everything that minds do. And of course, which is often news for many of us, beyond what is familiar to us. That is to say, silence. Uh, So, of course it's important. Uh, If you want to understand the Buddha's teaching, uh, the teachings are constantly, again and again, in many creative and different ways, pointing to the relationship between the fact that we suffer We humans suffer tremendously in an unnecessary way because we don't understand ourselves. Now, as I look around, most of us would be classified as adults, right? There are few people who maybe, not too many, who are on the edge of uh, uh, reaching that wonderful state of adulthood. That means we already know how to live, so what do we want to know, know about this stuff? We tell other people how to live in our professions as parents, and uh, essentially, we repeat what we know. 
which we got from our parents who got from their parents and so forth. Some of it's great. Uh, some of it is just perpetuating delusion and suffering, even though it's well-meaning. And so uh, this is to break new ground. The Buddha is sometimes referred to as a revolutionary, but it's not one where there's any blood. Imagine that there could be, maybe there have been a bit, but it's not about that kind of revolution. It's a quiet revolution because it's an, a new way of looking at the same person that's been living for however long you've been inhabiting this planet. What is that? Now they ask it, your carbon footprint or thing. What, is it, what do they call it? Footprint? What? Well, it's how much you take up of somehow. Ecological footprint, that one, yeah. Okay. Uh, in short, we're part of life. Uh, so self-knowing, uh, first of all, why knowing instead of knowledge? Knowing is something that happens in the active present. In a moment of awareness, when you're really paying attention, there's something that gets known. Its value is in that moment, period. It's not, uh, knowledge is something you acquire and you file away, at least as I'm using the terms. It's not filling up the notebook of the story of me and my life, starring me, adding even more chapters uh, and enriching it so that we have an even more magnificent or horrible narrative about ourselves. The truth is, uh, liberation is from our story. We all have a story, and it's not that the story is irrelevant or that we or it goes away. It's not a. This is not a training program in amnesia. But uh, the suffering comes because of our unexamined life, and under, uh, which means unexamined mind. So the value of the seeing is in the moment. It's in the active present, and. It, the clear seeing is valuable in that moment. Uh, it can see what correct action is, whether it's what to say, what to do. Uh, and as the mind becomes more and more clear, less cluttered by mechanical conditioned preoccupations, repetitive thoughts and notions from the past, as it becomes more clear, then what to say and do in the present moment flows right out of the seeing, so that the clear seeing is a kind of intelligence. It's not rational intelligence. It's not one plus one equals two. Or conceptual intelligence, as valuable as that is. It's something uh, in the seeing that's more accurate. Uh, what, because what I, in my use of seeing, uh, it's not necessarily uh, in the ordinary use of that. And of course, it's primarily inner seeing. So that self-knowing goes on right here, right now, and as our ability to see becomes more refined, vipassana means clear seeing. One of the meanings of the word vipassana, or insight, seeing into, is clear seeing. And it's the seeing that frees us. It's the seeing that brings us sanity. It's the seeing that enables us to flower inwardly. It's inner seeing. Uh, the seeing that, uh, that we do outer, of course, uh, is relevant. It's because the degree to which our, the seeing inwardly is clear, then, of course, 
our, our, what we see outwardly is clear. But a lot of the seeing is not necessarily with eyes. It's a, a knowing, an awareness. Okay, so uh, that's why it's active. Self. Um, even if you know very little about the Buddhist teaching, probably you've heard that uh, it's about freedom from self. Uh, so why self-knowing? Uh, why would, what do we want to know about the self? It's not so much knowing about the self, it's, see, it's knowing the ways of the self. I'm going to use the term selfing. That is, in those moments when we identify with anything and make it a sense of me. And if you have me, then in the next you have also mine or not mine. Not me, me. Uh, and if you examine your mind, you'll see that a lot of our life has lived in that space. Okay, so we start off by examining that mind. If you um, read the life of the Buddha, before the Buddha attained enlightenment, as the story, or however you want to view it, uh, legend, however you want to point, however you see it goes, the Buddha, just before enlightenment, one of the things that happened is he reviewed all his past lives. He started to see all the different incarnations, the different existences, how he lived this way, how he was a that, how he was a this. And he began to, he began to see all the, the patterns, life after life of suffering. And these were particular lives of a person known as whatever, before he was the Buddha, became the Buddha. Buddha is a title, it's not a personal name, it's seeing, the one who sees, total seeing. But then out of that, he universalized the particular. This isn't as pompous as it sounds. Uh, in seeing many, many lives over and over and over again, his lives, he started to see recurrent patterns, even though the content was different. He started to see life after life, ways in which suffering was made, particularly uh, clinging, attachment, craving, again and again for different things as our life changes, but it, it seems to not matter. The suffering comes from when we have a, uh, fixations and want things to be a certain way or don't want them to be a certain way, and then life seems to have a mind of its own, and it just unfolds. And he started to see the recurrent nature, the lawfulness of it all, now, let's see, I can, I'm not psychic, but I can, perhaps some of your minds are saying, oh, no, not the past lives and rebirth and reincarnation. I thought these people are supposed to be in the scientific age and rational and all that stuff. Any of you having thoughts like that? He doesn't really believe that baloney. No Marxists here, okay. <laughs> um, for the moment, let's say, uh, maybe let's, for the moment, give the Buddha the benefit of the doubt. But... Are we going to be reviewing all of our past lifetimes? Rather doubtful. But you see, uh, what it's saying is, to begin with, when you begin the journey of self-knowing, what you're observing is the particularities of your life, this one. And the beauty, one of the beauties of the practice is the sacred ground, the sacred ground that we, that we practice in is always exactly as we are in this moment, right here, right now. To me, that's a wonderful, um, if you can really get that, it's a relief. It, you might say, well, I wish I had learned this practice uh, 20 years earlier. It doesn't matter. 
because whether you've been practicing for a hundred years or you just started, it's always going to be now. And what we're being encouraged to is to begin where we are. Where else can you begin? You have to begin where you are. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're making up something. Where you want to be or where you used to be, that's over. Where you want to be, imagination. Might be a beautiful imagining, but it's, it's not a fact. So we start with the, the most perfect materials that you could have to practice with, which is our life just as it is. You might say, my life is really horrible. That's why I've come to this room. Come up here. Fine. Then you have to start there. But throw away the word horrible. Throw away the word, oh, my life is great. That's the deluded person. Not always. Some, some people. But very often, everything's fine. I'm terrific. Uh, you have any problems? No. So what are you doing here? Oh, I'm curious. My boyfriend, my girlfriend is doing it. I just wanted to see what all this meditation stuff is. I have a little bit of stress. Those are the ones I watch very carefully if they come. <laughs> okay. So to begin with, the practice of the, essentially overlaps a lot with what would happen in good psychotherapy or just look, before there was psychotherapy, human beings learn from just being alive. You learn something from life. It, I, it's hard to imagine a human being who doesn't learn something from being alive. <laughs> that it's limited, that it doesn't uh, dramatically transform one. That se- certainly seems to be the norm. Uh, but you do learn something just by being alive, making mistakes, getting hurt, getting disappointed. Uh, pleasant surprises, wonderful things that happen. Okay, so learning goes on. It's just that from the point of view of liberation, uh, it's really minimal. It's sort of rearranging the furniture. In the same furniture, or even if you get a few new objects in the same room. But nothing, nothing really has changed. Okay, so um, self-knowing begins where I think it's quite familiar to all of us. Let's say this is a very psychological culture. And Cambridge and Environ is a very psychological place. It's a rare person who's not been in or is in therapy or is a therapist. (laughs) I don't know if anyone's allowed to live in Cambridge if they're not. (laughs) You're screened if you want to move in here. Okay, so that means you've done some looking at yourself. And what you're learning is about what is conventionally, and I'm not using that in a derogatory way at all, uh, familiar to you. Your hang-ups, your loves, your hates, your fears, your apprehensions, uh, aspects of your character where you feel your character is strong, where where it's weak. You start to uh, improve that. You start to talk about your fears as in good psychotherapy, or just with a good friend. Um, but as the practice unfolds, it goes... So to begin with, we, we're, we can't help but ask the question, who am I? And the answers are recognizably ordinary answers. I'm, uh, and people then start talking about themselves in this way. Uh, I'm a very uh, angry person, <coughs> labeling ourselves, categorizing ourselves. Uh, I wish I had more of or less of, and I used to be, but now I am. And the conversations are familiar, and they're, they're the answer to the question, who am I? 
and the answers are, are known to us. They're in ordinary language. But as the practice goes deeper, you'll find that self-knowing is about who you aren't, and you're none of it. That it is in a pr- profound way, the mind keeps telling us who we are, through notions, through memories, through stories, through words, through pictures. It's unexamined. Uh, we don't realize how much of our actions are propelled by notions about ourselves, and we do it to other people, and they're doing it to us. And we're living in a certain way in a largely conceptual world, which we take very seriously. That's why one great Indian master, when, we, when he was uh, challenged in China uh, by the emperor of China, who asked him, like, who are you? Because he was making some, to the emperor, outrageous statements. He said, I have no idea. (laughs) Now, does that mean that that person needs to be taken to the local uh, psychiatric unit for evaluation? He has amnesia. What he means is he's not an idea. He's not a notion. He's not a picture. Uh, So as you, uh, just in sitting meditation, some of you I know have done some stuff comes through the mind, doesn't it? Isn't so much of it. It's about me. And is it totally consistent? Probably not. Things come through the mind. One minute you're uh, Mother Teresa, the next minute you're Adolf Hitler. Well, which one is you? In one moment you're this, and the next moment you're that. They're contradictory. There's a lot of conflict. As you watch it, you see what it is. They're images. They're thoughts about yourself. They're notions. I used to be... I am, I will be, essentially labels. As you start watching it, of course, the watching, seeing is an energy. You can't do self-knowing without seeing. That's why insight meditation or vipassana is, is finally, the key to the liberation is the clearer and clearer inner seeing of your emotional life, your mental life, and beyond. Okay. So as you start to watch the landscape, the, the, the materials, the the weather conditions of your mind, seeing, you've heard the term mindfulness right now, right? It is very popular. It is catching up to organic, I think. (laughs) And I predict it will surpass organic. (laughs) Okay, so every, I've seen uh, mindfulness on commercials now. Okay, so I assume everyone knows what what it means. Um, Mindfulness, so we hear it. I'm, uh, let's see, what's one I saw recently? Um, what was it? Oh, it doesn't matter really. It's so, so many of them. Let's say uh, mindfully uh, vacuuming. Uh, so the word is mindful. We know it roughly means paying attention. But mindfulness is not a word, just a, it's a word. But what it's pointing to is energy. In other words, seeing is an energy. Inner seeing is an energy. When you learn how to direct your attention to your inner life, that includes the body. You experience the body now not from the point of view of science, of anatomy and physiology, but from raw experience. You look at what we call emotion, what we call fear, what we call loneliness, and the words that come through the mind telling you everything. As you start to observe that, the seeing... Or is mindfulness, if, you, if I could personify it, here's mindfulness, here's whatever mindfulness is, is directed at, that energy, seeing energy, touches something. 
and in the touching it transforms it. Have you seen that yet? For example, strongly held thoughts, which we have never examined, about this, that, and the other. When you're mindful of the thought, there's no power there. They're just pathetic little creatures, homeless, rootless, blah, 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 going, coming through. Uh, if you're not mindful of it, the blah, blah, blah is saying, you're a worthless, no good, awful person. Yes, I am. I'm terrible. Because we, we identify with it. We believe it. If you see it, you can hear the mind telling you who you are. It's, a, it's just a characterization, a phrase. But the awareness touches it. When it touches it, it's not powerful anymore. In fact, mostly it just, it, often sentences don't even finish themselves. And sometimes people will come into interviews and saying, I am, I'm learning, I'm finally being mindful of thought. Uh, but, not, but the thoughts all fall away. There are no thoughts, as if that's a problem. You know, fine, don't look for trouble. Uh, so the mindfulness is an energy, and what it touches, it transforms. When it touches physical pain, something happens. When it touches emotion, something happens. When it touches images and thoughts, something happens. So it's a force. The more you do it, the more refined it becomes. The more refined it becomes, the more power it has. Mindfulness can become like a flame. Not only steady, but it just burns through whatever is there. Okay, what is left after all the notions about who you are that we've struggled so hard to build up? Images of ourselves with our scrapbooks and our outfits and our, you know, everything that we've and, we've, and then we outgrow them. No, I'm not that. I used to, uh, I would cry if you try to take my cowboy outfit away. Now, you know, like, I don't even know where it is. I hope some kid is playing with it. I don't know. Uh, and then I went through with my baseball outfit. My, then my last one was my Zen robes. No, I have this one now, you know, my ordinary person outfit. My normal Cambridge kind of guy, sporty, but a little bit refined. <laughs> kind of guy. Yeah. What next? I don't know, I think I'm running out, but that might, that might be wishful thinking. Hey, so when you start seeing all these, this parade of stuff come through the mind and it starts losing its power and falls away, it's replaced by space and silence. And that's who we are. Now, that doesn't sound very appealing, does it? <laughs> silence, I mean, I work all this, I've worked for years building up a sense of who I am. I've gotten this degree so I can think that I'm smart. I've gotten that outfit so I can think I'm beautiful, handsome. I've uh, moved into that house so I appear successful, I've, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You mean all of that goes to waste? No, of course not. Have a nice house. Be intelligent. Learn things. That's not the problem. That's not where the suffering comes in. The suffering comes in when we make a status out of it, we make an entity out of it, we identify with it, and then someone just sticks a pin in it, as people do, and then we're crushed. Oh, you thought you were very intelligent? Uh, meet my friend Al Einstein. He just came here from Vienna. Uh, so you start seeing that it's a struggle to try to maintain your uh, some sense of balance. So when you start seeing through it and the letting go happens, first of all, we use the word silence or perhaps emptiness is better. This is a, a tough one. I'm getting ahead of because many of you are here for the first time, which might mean you're new to all this. And 
some of you who have been here for a while are relatively new to all this. Emptiness is an English word. It's, a, it's, not, a, it's not no word. It's sometimes it's translated as voidness, which I think is worse. Shunyata is the original term, or shunya. And what it means is empty of any disturbance, empty of any notions of me or mine, or is a mind. And uh, that silent, uh, the Tibetans have a very simple and nice way of putting it, the cognizing power of emptiness. That means the mind that's empty, that still, has knowing. It's very, very intelligent. The clearer it gets, meaning the more silent and spacious it gets, the more intelligent it has. It's a different kind of intelligence. It won't get you admitted to MIT, but it'll help you see why you want to get admitted to MIT. No, a bad one. All right. <laughs> You'd, okay, drop that one. This is Cambridge, I forgot. You don't have a humor about MIT yet? All right. It's probably because you haven't gone there. Yeah. Um, so more and more, life is lived from the silence. Now, I'm going to get to that in a moment. So self-knowing at first is recognizably obvious things you're learning about yourself, which maybe weren't obvious to begin with, but you really feel it too. Then you start becoming less interested in your particular biography, just as the Buddha started to see Again and again, lifetime after lifetime, the content changed, but it was always, let's say, grasping, uh, craving and grasping and suffering, craving and grasping and suffering. The, what was grasped at kept changing, but the suffering didn't. Okay, uh, at a certain point, as we begin to see our our particular personality, uh, uh, something happens, and it's the equivalent, I would say, to what happened to the Buddha. We start seeing things. Uh, in a way that goes deeper than just a, a, pers- the, a, a personal, the particulars of being a particular of a per- of a particular individual. Now, the old mind or the ego mind that hears this usually doesn't like what I just said, or it doesn't know what I'm talking about. It sounds very abstract. It's not because, for example, the Buddha says uh, emphasizes if you co- keep coming around to places like this that everything is impermanent. Everything that arises passes away. If anything is of the nature to appear, it must disappear. And everything means everything. Okay, Whether it's vegetation or at some point this planet will disappear. Whether it's the reasons that we, uh, we may help it along through ignorance, we may not. But so everything is changing. Now, so what? What's the value of knowing that? Why is that a piece of wisdom? Why? Because it's true. Our life, in other words, we don't have forever. And if you can get more and more attune yourself to this lawfulness, then it's possible to be with things while they're there and to fully live with them, even love them. And when they leave, it's not that you don't necessarily grieve, but you understand that everything that appears passes away. So that it's, it's something, that kind of understanding, it begins up in the mind. So this is a kind of learning, conceptual. But then as you, if you practice with it, not merely think about it, you begin to actually see it in your own mind and your own body. You can watch an emotion, let's say loneliness. It doesn't last forever. And then you watch it again and it doesn't last forever. Do that three or four times, or fear. Your relationship to that emotion will change. 
if you don't have that kind of a, a different way of relating, that is where mindfulness stays with, let's say, fear, which is a big one for us humans, uh, if the, the, and that isn't something we've been educated to look at or to understand. We've been educated to get away from it or to become stronger or courageous or whatever. Uh, it feels like it is forever in the moments when it's there. It's very convincing. Moreover, it feels solid like a mountain. But if you can, uh, but with this practice, and I don't know if this is what you want, those of you who are new, you will be learning the art of being with yourself as you are. So it's not that you have to make yourself be afraid. But if fear is there, you can learn the art. You can help the mind learn how to be so steady and unwavering, that here's fear and here's that mindfulness, the seeing energy touches the fear. Not the word. Fear is also energy. Everything's energy. Okay? And something happens when mindfulness touches it and sees it. it isn't a mountain. It doesn't last forever. Your relationship starts to change and the letting go of it, letting go of the clutching to it, starts to become easier and easier. So in this approach, wisdom is what helps us live. A wise person is a person who suffers less, who is uh, very interested in the art of living. And uh, let's see, I started seven thirty. Hmm. I didn't even get off the title. <laughs> we didn't even get to quiet or passion, did we? We'll get to it. Um, so this self-understanding, this gives you some sense of. It's getting, it's getting to know yourself, and it doesn't happen exclusively on the cushion. Self-knowing happens in action. First of all, most of our life is not going to be on, this, on a cushion or however you sit, obviously. Even if you're a professional yogi, you don't just sit in a cushion all day long. Life includes action. Okay. And in any given moment, if you pay attention, you can learn about yourself. Life is the great teacher. The lessons are being delivered with nonstop, 24 hour, 24-7. It's just no one's signing up for the course. So this is saying, please, it's not, sure there are courses here at CIMC. If you want, sign up for them. But those courses are telling you to sign up for the real course, which is the course of how to live, learning how to live. Okay, let's get to, uh, to quiet to uh, quiet passion. Um, in some ways, first of all, passion is a word that in spiritual circles sometimes people uh, get upset when they hear it. Oh, passion? Uh, that's suffering, isn't it? Because uh, we think of passion as somehow out-of-control lust in some grade Z movie you know, that produces all kinds of affairs and suffering and killing and murder and running and you know all this kind of... Uh, or passion is uh, flamenco dancing. You know, it's, it's a very dramatic, external, you know, with certain dramatic music and dramatic movements. Or it's acting with a very dramatic flair, masterpiece theater. Okay? But passion could also be very quiet. Uh, the passion I'm talking about has a lot more to do with interest, love. Uh, if you don't really want to understand your life, you won't. It's often people come to meditation, not just here. And what, you, what we want is a pill. 
Please tell me what to do. In, out, in, out. All right, follow the breath. I'm doing it. In, out, in, out, in, out. I, I, feel, I, don't, I still feel crummy. Okay, do more of it. Okay, in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. A little better, yeah. Um, it's such a limited view of what this is. It's not, there are techniques and methods that are very helpful. There's a technology available that's been tested for thousands of years. It's an inner technology. Just like we've mastered outer technologies in science. This has existed way before the Buddha. There are certain meditative techniques and how precious awareness of breath can be. And it goes back five and 6,000 years. There's more growing archaeological evidence of that. Human, some human beings have examined this realm, the inner realm. What, what does it mean to be a person? What am I doing here? I think Socrates and the Buddha would have had, been great pals, would have enjoyed going to cafes in, in Athens and just had a great time. Probably would drive everyone crazy. Because who am I? And then the big question is, how is one to live? How am I to live, really? How, how, how do I live? How do I actually live? So quiet passion, in one most obvious sense, is there can be an inner flame that's burning that's not visible to, to people who meet you. You can be a shy, quiet, uh, introverted person and passionate in there. People don't necessarily see it. Uh, so what's the passion for? Uh, and I would say one of the, the main meanings of this is the passion to learn. And it's to learn about how you live. Uh, I think I'm going to... Uh, I really want to hear what you guys have to say, but l- let me begin this learning stuff. Um, when you think of learning... Well, let's say, put it this way. Uh, typically, I know I come from a family where learning was valued. I don't think that's so unusual. Sometimes you don't, but you pick it up anyway. Uh, there were books in the house. Uh, when my father had some free time, uh, I, he would be reading. My mother never seemed to have free time. It was a different gender or relationship then. Um, but it was definitely considered good. To, to read, to learn, and so forth. And so for most of us, learning has to do with studying and then going to schools. At all the different age levels and grades, you learn, and then at a certain point, you're finished with school, hopefully. You know, for some of you who are still enmeshed, it does come to an end. Degrees come to an end. Maybe attending school comes to an end, but learning needn't end. Now, I come from a home where it was emphasized, and I did a lot of it. I loved to read. I loved to study. My work was teaching, uh, and, it took, and, and I was suffering. I was teaching at a, at a university level, and it took me many years to understand that learning is not limited to books. Book learning is fine. It has its place. I still enjoy study, but it's very, very different. But there's another kind of learning which unfortunately we humans don't value very much, speaking in general, and it's learning how to live. Because the message of the Buddha, some of you are distracted, listen to this one, even if you're bored to death with what I'm saying. The Buddha's saying is, human race, you don't know how to live. Just look at what's going on. And this was 2,600 years ago. Can you imagine if the Buddha were alive now? Okay, so... Just briefly, let's go bigger than an individual, but we'll come back. I'm not going to go on some 
political diatribe, anti-Bush. It's not that. It's, it's, it's way beyond that. It's all of us. Uh, we, our ability to learn is staggering. When you look at the amazing developments in science and technology, miraculous, that you can remove a heart. You know, I don't have to spell it out. And it hasn't, we can fly in the air, we can go under the water, we can go underground. Um, the things we can do with the body, uh, computers, uh, astonishing. So we do have uh, amazing ability to learn and to keep learning and to understand. And that is well underway and is in one sense doing beautifully. Okay. But if you look back to 2,600 years ago, even before the Buddha, people were still killing each other then and they are now. It seems like, for whatever reason it is, we're interested in learning anything but about ourselves. Look, give me anything to do. To take, we don't want to take my mind off me. I don't want to know about me. There have always been people who've, who've, who've insisted that you can't, that a life, as, as Socrates put it in a very strong way, a life unexamined is not a life worth living. I don't, I don't want to be that judgmental. But you can see where there might be some truth to that. If you don't understand how you're living, you're going to cause problems for yourself and anyone who's in your life. Because the living is coming out of, it's mechanical. It, it is not fresh. It's not pliable. It's not intelligent because it's not totally attuned to what's happening now because it's coming out of old formulas and recipes which come from our past. Okay, so the art of living, which is what, for me, the Buddha is emphasizing, uh, it, it's always been important. But I would say at this point in the history of us humans on this strange planet, uh, we are so overdeveloped. It's, it, 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 the people have always been killing each other with bow and arrows, you know, with knives, with spears. Also, there wasn't a huge industry based on killing. Huge, which requires that the killing be ongoing. And this is, again, it's not political. It's, it is political. It's about all of us. The human requires it. Or those, the, all that profit-making is, uh, go, comes to nil. We've sort of now the difference between 2,600 years ago and now is that although the, the mind was just as ignorant then, just as caught up in greed and hatred and confused, is that the power that has been released by the mastery of the physical world, by science and technology, has changed everything. We are on the edge of possibly destroying ourselves. Okay, now I am not uh, saying that come to here to CIMC. Uh, because we're, we're going to save the world. Uh, every, we'll have everyone meditating soon. Uh, I doubt it, my goodness. But I can't wait for that. Because when we come back to the individual level, on an individual level, I'm doing what the whole planet is doing. After all, who is the planet made up of? It's made up of lots of Larrys. But, you know, I'm sorry about that, but I... <laughs> You know, there are six billion egomaniacs on the planet. And what I hear is there are going to be more in the future. The planet's the same size. We don't know enough to take care of the air, the water. So there's some failure. And uh, just like individuals can be living a life that's destructive 
and be unable to redirect their energies so that they... You see, a lot of our practice is unlearning what's unskillful, what's unwise. It's not so much doing an impersonation of being a wise, kind person, reading about the Buddha and and great yogis and all that, and then uh, doing a masterpiece theater version of you being that. That It'll fall apart. It's just a a theater. Um, So what is needed is a genuine wisdom, which can only come... Uh, much of it, not all of it, much of it comes from seeing the lack of wisdom. In other words, thank, hooray for foolishness, because out of the foolishness grows wisdom. But only if you learn from your foolishness. You see that you can admit mistakes, you can apologize to a person when you're off. You can start to examine yourself, and this takes courage, and sometimes you have to swallow very hard. By learning how to really get to know yourself, you're not going to like some of what you see. And yet, you keep with it. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Okay, so even if, forget about politics and the planet. Who cares about that? I, I just care about me. Fine. How, how's me doing? Me is a little planet. It's doing the same thing because we know so much more about the outside than the inside that we're mainly concerned with earning money and spending it. Isn't that what our life is mainly about? And I don't mean this politically. I just, you just look and you can see it. The passion is, I've got to get more money. Why? So I can spend more of it and get these things and constantly new things for us to spend. Okay. Uh, and we don't want to get to know ourselves. We're not at home with silence. We're not at home with inner peace. Look around. The distractions are staggering. No one wants to be quiet, just even externally. Uh, everyone has earphones. What's that about? I'm not against music. Or maybe you're listening. I don't know what people are, people are learning and so forth. But apparently, unless we get help, we don't really want to be with ourselves. So this place is a torture chamber, CIMC. <laughs> Our, if you walk in here, you've asked for trouble. Our job, we're trying to do it gently and delicately. But what we're going to do, and I, I know Michael and Ryan, we know each other, it's unrelenting. We're going to keep encouraging you to develop the abilities. First of all, you can't really do it unless the mind becomes steady and clear. So we have to develop certain abilities, which can be learned. They're skills. Uh, If we say you can begin to weaken fear, uh, perhaps dramatically, uh, by learning how to observe it, but you can't do that if the ability to observe has no strength, has no stability, what we call samadhi. So we have to develop the the, the ability of the mind to be steady enough to be able to look at what it doesn't want to see. And we're not swallowing the whole ocean in one gulp. It's little by little, like anything else. You want to learn anything, you have to put in time and learn it. But you have to... uh, Probably everyone in this room has something they love. They love to learn. Uh, I spent the first part of my life loving to learn basically information. I was much more interested in ideas about reality than the reality. In other words, the the world was here in order to help ideas come about so that I could get really excited about the ideas. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Okay, the practice is trying to get us in touch with the reality that the words are just symbols of. And and, uh, that's why, like in Cambridge, Cambridge is a metaphor for, you know, larger... 
when you can explain something about yourself, you feel like your job is done. Conceptually, psychologically, you're just beginning. You haven't even really begun. It's the really intimate, direct, clear seeing of what's there. And it's not all suffering. And in fact, as the mind, as you start tasting the silence, there's immense joy and love inside that's intrinsic. Each one of us, no one got cheated. We all have it, but you have to find out if it's so. Um, I don't know, I hope this doesn't come across as bragging, because I got through it through pain. It wasn't him. The, the, the learning that I loved was I, I loved learning mainly from books and then being able to express myself in writing and verbally about it. How that transformed itself over a period of years to learning uh, to love the art of living. In other words, uh, even if what I'm looking at and learning about is painful and ugly, uh, it enhances my understanding of what it means to be alive for me. It's not the same as reading it in a book, or what Kierkegaard said, or Camus said, uh, or the Buddha said. Uh, and so that my quiet passion, over many years and out of a lot of pain, has it's not neglected or, re- or rejected the wise words of other people in books or from their, from their mouths, but more and more, there's a tremendous joy that comes from self-exploration, from trying to understand how I actually live. And I don't know, I, I've tried everything and I'm going to continue to. How to convey that to people? Let's say you love to dance or you love photography or you love to cook. Great, keep that up. That's fine. Can you love to be sane? Get so fed up with, with your... Do you know Mishigas? It's a technical term. It means... <laughs> This means suffering. Okay. Uh, so, so fed up with it, but also enjoying uh, the joy that can come out of learning about yourself, even small things when you see them. Let me uh, finish this with a quote that is so dear to my heart. I Probably some of you have heard this many times, but really listen anyway. One of my favorite artists is a Japanese uh, painter named Hokusai. And he painted, um, uh, one of you probably have seen some of his work. He had a hundred views of Mount Fuji. And they were all seen through waves. You see different waves. And sometimes there's always a little, if you look carefully, you'll see a little boat with people, you know, just on huge waves. And then maybe this time you see Mount Fuji from this angle, and then you see it from this angle, and then from here. So they're all, what you see are waves, but they're all called views of Mount Fuji. Okay, so I just, uh, for whatever reason, I always liked his his art. And then one day I saw this book and it had, uh, and the, the book is called, uh, it, there was a preface to the book called A Hundred Views of Fuji. And there's a quote from him. And this is what, this is what uh, Hokusai says. From the age of six, I had a mania for drawing the form of things. By the time I was 50, I had published an infinity of designs. But all I have produced before the age of 70 is not worth taking into account. At 73, I've learned a little bit about the real structure of nature, of animals, plants, trees, birds, fishes, and insects. In consequence, when I'm 80, I shall have made still more progress. At 90, I shall penetrate the mystery of things. 
At a hundred, I shall certainly have reached a marvelous stage, and when I'm a hundred and ten, everything I do, be it but a dot or a line, will be alive. I beg those who live as long as I to see if I do not keep my word. Written at the age of seventy-five by me, once Hokusai, today Guaco Rojin, the old man mad about drawing. Okay, uh, great. I don't know, you know, a lot of, uh, I just hope his life, you know, a lot of people who are mad about art are, you know, their personal lives are. Okay, so I'm trying to convey something. Uh, the human race has to learn how to value self-understanding, and it's not just for philosophy 1.1 when, you go, or when you're an undergraduate and you read the Greeks. Uh, if you don't start caring about your own life, I don't know if it's going to change that much. If it needs to change, maybe it doesn't. What's on your mind? Enough of my blah, blah. Please. When can, oh, can people start leaving now? Is that it? Yeah. It's not rude. I, I'd rather go right into it so we don't waste time. If some of you have to leave, just leave. It's not rude. Uh, but let's get, let's get some, something like a dialogue going. I'm all ears. Please. What do you do when you hear the story of the Buddha and you're more attracted to the life he had before he was enlightened when he was in the palace? You'd rather be a king or a prince. (laughs) And then you can give it up, but... Fine, you don't need advice from me. You're already living that way, aren't you? You're living a worldly life. That was just a successful worldly life, which he inherited. But what do you do? Why is there a problem? Uh, If you don't want to do all this stuff I was talking about, fine, don't. It's simple. I mean, I don't have any advice. You mean, do you want advice as how you can become princely or a king or be more successful? There are endless workshops on how 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 to make lots of money and how to be successful. I don't know anything about that. I'm a failure there. What is your question? Uh, it seems like the goal. Well, it, it just seems like wandering around begging. <laughs> I know. I know this is crazy. But no, just say it. Yeah. Well, no. It just seems the, the. It's like he left this life and then he became the Buddha and. That was better than previous things. Yes. But from my point of view, wandering around and getting kind of bowl of rice every day, as opposed to living in a palace, yeah. the other thing was better. Uh-huh. Okay, that implies you really know what his life was. You know, in other words, see, you're focusing on the appearance and on, uh, yes, obviously. Uh, first of all, uh, in India at the time, Spirituality and a lot of traditions is def- was defined by uh, becoming a monk or a nun, basically a monk, and giving up things. That's one, I would call it a strategy. The whole point of the Buddhist teaching, because lay people were in on it too, is to free yourself of suffering. The rest are all these different forms, one of which is to cut down your needs dramatically. Okay, but uh, you don't really know. You see, here's the part that you can imagine you know, but I'm going to pull a little rank on you. 
I hope you'll excuse me. Uh, it's not that I'm some a big Buddha, but um, there's a happiness. How to put this? There's a happiness that is possible by doing what the Buddha was doing, that is incomparably, incomparably beyond whatever it is your imagination is about what living in a palace would be, because there are headaches there too. Okay. Now, how can you know that until you've tasted it? You can't. So, for some reason, maybe you're not suffering enough yet. So, maybe life has to punch you around a little bit more. Come back in a few years. We'll still be saying the same old thing. I will, if I'm here. The old man who kept saying, what did he say? (laughs) Old Larry, he just kept saying the same old thing. (laughs) Um. What I'm saying is you can't really, in all fairness, judge the quality of his inner life. All you can do is see that uh, he's walking around eating one meal a day and not having sex. It's, and, and has no, only one, you know, his outfits are three robes. Okay. And is that a guarantee of, uh, of a great life? I've lived in monasteries in Asia. Definitely not. There's lots of suffering there too. That's a value insofar as it helps a human being attain liberation and freedom from suffering. That's what it's about. It's not about one bowl of rice. I eat, I have three meals a day. What I'm trying to say is I've had a glimpse of what the Buddha is talking about or I'd be a fool to talk the way I do. Just a complete idiot. So whatever small little tongue taste I've had of it, uh, you can't take it away from me. The palace, uh, another neighboring tribe can come in and defeat you, and, you have, and then you're dead, or you're made a slave. Uh, this, what I have here, you can't take away from me. If you throw me in prison, I have it. If I lose all my, uh, there's a, uh, I lose my house, I lose, it's burning in there, what little I know of it. And the practice just takes me more and more into that. You have it too. That's the real treasure. It's who you really are. That's what, the, that's what the whole practice is about. Now, what you're doing is imagining the, the old mind, the mind that, but something got you to march over here, right? I'm interested in that. What got you to come to this funny room tonight? If you want to be in the palace, you don't need to come to places like this. Just work harder and get a promotion and buy a nice big house. Maybe you already have one. You don't have to... No. But what, what did, what, what, in other words, there is one mind in you that got you to come over here. What's that? I'm interested in that mind. Well, it's just general suffering, yeah. I, I ah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was outwardly successful as an academic and inwardly not. In other words, the gap between my resume and the quality of my inner life was like Grand Canyon. So if you judged me, if you didn't know me, and say, whoa, he's teaching at a prestigious university, he has, he's healthy, he's young, he's got money for the first time in his life, he's uh, living in a nice place in Cambridge, of all places. Well, wow. So how come, I, how come my resume was terrific? But uh, that it didn't necessarily ca- carry over into the quality of my life. Moreover, it wasn't just me. I, that was very painful to see that that doesn't necessarily... I'm not against let's say, university life, or success in anything. It's just that what we do in the course of trying to get happiness, we all want happiness, that seems to be what it's about, is we define it as getting outer things. And it seems to be very hard to get that. Like if a relationship, we want the perfect partner. There is no such thing. Because everyone's imperfect, they're just human. And they want a perfect partner. 
Okay, maturity is starting to, for us imperfect beings, to be able to learn how to live with each other with some, some kindness, some compassion, understanding our limitations, and not making them into problems necessarily. Okay, so what it got me to do after getting very depressed, because I worked so hard to get an advanced degree and teach at a prestigious university and get success in terms of writing and all that, and have my parents, immigrants, working-class immigrants, so proud of me. Uh, How could you be suffering then? But I was. That was just a fact. Now, why did the Buddha leave? Is he just self-destructive? Maybe he needs therapy. (laughs) Because he had it all made. You know, he, he was born into everything. And he saw that there is, first of all, that you have to age that you also eventually you, you grow ill and eventually you die. And he saw that he wasn't exempt from that and he didn't understand it. But anyway, that's his... Uh, so, uh, fine. You Keep up your thing about wanting to be in the palace. I don't want to take that away from you. But if you're suffering, would you rather not be suffering? Okay. So there are concrete, definite methods here to help you start to, to do that. So I don't care what you think of your, where you'd like to be or your self-image or all that, but uh, if you're willing to do a few of the, to learn how to meditate, then let's see what happens. But it can help you at least not suffer so much. Yeah. Please. In your comments, in your comments about self-knowing. Yes. To begin with, certainly, yes. Uh, experience, of course, uh, encompasses a very wide spectrum. Yes. Some of which is truth and some of which is false. How can one uh, approach this wide spectrum of experience with confidence as to what is true and what is not true? Okay, uh, remember, from this point of view that I'm speaking... I have, I, I can, uh, this is how I would answer that. Uh, someone else might answer very, very differently. Uh, if something is true, then it can help you get free. Because the reason we're suffering unnecessarily is that we're not living in truth. We're living in delusion in our imagination. Okay. So, uh, learning how to live has everything to do with what you're asking. Uh, as your awareness gets more refined, you start watching how you actually live. Actually, capital letters, neon, shout it. Actually, not how you think you live, or how your mommy told you to live, or how your priest, rabbi, uh, whatever, tells you, uh, mullah, whatever, whatever religion, tells you how to live. And you, how do you find that out? By paying attention from moment to moment. How do I actually live? You start to get to know, how do I eat? How do I... Uh, uh, how do, what do I do when, I, when suffering visits me? How do I handle that? So that's what self-knowing is. But one of the tests it comes, it, it, it comes out of an exchange between the Buddha and his 17-year-old. We can leave the history out. Uh, if something is skillful, that means it is beneficial for you and for others. Okay? So that it doesn't cause suffering for you and for others. If it's unskillful, it does. So that the, the training is more and more to be able to recognize clearly actions that are based, let's say, on untruth and don't work. They, they're designed to bring you happiness and they don't. And you begin to see, of course they don't, because they're ill-conceived. 
They're just ideas that are, that are not have, don't have enough connection to the way reality really is. Okay, so it's an ongoing learning because the ability to answer your question, I would say, improves as your. That's part of the fruit of practice. The clear seeing enables you to be a better judge of how to live. Of uh, first of all, you start seeing uh, a lot of what we're doing. As I mentioned, I hope. Yeah, I did mention it. Is we're learning. We're learning how to unlearn what doesn't work. And when you start unlearning ways of of behaving, of speaking, of thinking about things, and you start seeing how they produce suffering, uh, then uh, wisdom is starting to unlearn uh, as any sane person would want to do. Why would you want to perpetuate something that doesn't work? So your ability to do that is pretty crude to begin with, nothing personal, all of us. And as practice gets refined, your ability to see where you're off becomes the reflexes are quicker and also your ability to act on behalf of what you understand see we often we know exactly what to do and what not to do but we betray ourselves often okay Uh, that becomes something you examine you begin to see I see very clearly what needs to be done but I I don't want to do it and you don't do it and so then it keeps being a problem okay so then Let's say in this practice you would investigate that. That's interesting. There's something that you see very clearly is destructive, unskillful, produces suffering, and yet you keep doing it. It could have to do with eating. It could be an addiction. It could be this. It could be that. Uh, so then that becomes the, the focus of, of meditation. You start to get to know that. What is that all about? Sometimes we see it's fear. Well, if I really tell this person what I think, uh, I'll get fired. If I re- Do you see what I'm, what I'm getting at? So it's not a fix, but now truth, that's a word that's interesting because I would say what I'm talking about now is relatively true. It's called a conventional reality. Where the practice is going is beyond Buddhism and it's beyond anyism. It's beyond all the religions. And if they don't all come to the same thing, it's not a... a, a look, if you read the different religions, we, they all have different destinations, this one, you wind up at the side of God. That one, you know, there are many lifetimes. This one, there's only this. You know, it's just, it seems like the human mind is quite fertile in being, make, being able to make up stories about what happens to us after death, why we are the way we are, okay? And they each maintain that they have the truth, and we're more than willing to kill each other over these ideas, okay? Take a look at a book called The End of Faith by Sam, anyone? Sam? Yes. Okay, it's extreme, it's very harsh and, puni- and punishing, but there's a lot of truth in it. And we humans are able to live in where the evidence comes back again and again and again. And we just, okay, so uh, a life of awareness is to begin to face that and try to understand, well, why do we do that? One of the things that we do, for example, this is, I hope I'm answering the question a little bit, is let's say there's something that we know we shouldn't do but it feels so good. Okay, let's say it has to do with health. Okay, so what the mind does, this is what delusion is about. Delusion gives you what you want. What the mind will, it will overestimate the gratification of doing this. Mmm, this is going to taste so great. And it underestimates the consequences of doing it. It's, you're going to get cancer. Okay, or you have cancer and it's going to just make it worse. Okay, so the mind says, oh, go eat it. It's going to be fantastic. And it also says, yeah, there's a price to be paid. It isn't that big a deal. 
and we believe it. Okay. Now, self-knowing is you see that. You see the mind talking to itself, selling itself a bill of goods. Uh, this practice is like raising a child, only the, the child is your own mind. Do you know what I mean? My mind is about four years old. After 30 years of practice, I think it's about five now. You know, and I'm trying to bring it along. Help it understand itself. Help it see. You see now, Larry, little Larry there? This doesn't work. When you do this... Okay. Oh, okay. But I want to do it anyway. Okay. But then there's a truth that is non-conceptual, and that's what I'm trying to get at. There's a truth that has nothing to do with any ideology or culture or point of view or Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, inner meaning, outer meaning, Tibetan Buddhism. That's all man-made, human. Okay? And the practice by dealing with the relative truths of our daily life as we find it, that can help take us to, to that which is beyond um, constructed truth, what I would call real truth. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Please. First, let me thank you for a fine talk. Oh. Um, Do you really think so? <laughs> I really Okay. What's your name? And tell. <laughs> Do you have an email? Do you have an email? <laughs> okay, um, go ahead. I have two related questions uh, for someone who has been practicing for some period of time. Okay. How does one judge one's progress? Mm hmm. How does one determine what would be the most fruitful practices and areas of inquiry for further practice? Mm-hmm. It's like, how does one judge one's direction? No, I understand. It's a very, it's a, I get that question in different, slightly different many, many times. It's a very, very basic and good question. Uh, that, the question itself has to be looked at because some, some people have minds that are never satisfied in, an, in a wrong way. You know, like they never, I never got it right, I don't understand, I'm not getting anywhere. I just, there was an, an exchange not here at a different meditation place just last week that I was doing something like this. And uh, the person starts asking me to tell them, not the way you're doing it, it's a kind of inquiry. It's more she's telling me, please, I don't know, you know, I don't know anything, tell me. And she'd been practicing for, I think she said, somewhere between 15 and 18 years. Okay. So at a certain point, I said, look, um, you've been practicing for many, many years. Uh, you've been using this practice. She's saying, uh, how has your li- are, you, are you suffering less? Oh, yeah. Has it changed your life in any way? Oh, my God, I can't begin to tell you how much it's changed my life. Okay, so there's always that element. Here's another one. I don't do this in interviews, but I had Burmese teachers who used to do this. You come in for, let's say, following the breath. You come in and they'll say, uh, how many times did your mind leave the breath in that last 45 minutes sitting? Okay, th- this actually happened. In a re- because I was trained a little bit that way, and then I started off teaching doing it, and I stopped it pretty quickly. So the person comes in and says, during the, uh, the la- uh, uh, this past sitting, uh, my mind wandered from the breath uh, ten times. Uh, the practice is so difficult, and it's just going terribly. Okay. Then later on, someone else comes in. I say, how many times did your mind leave the breath? Ten times. Isn't it fantastic? It's just great. I'm having such a good retreat. Well, wait a minute. 
So I saw, you know, that's kind of a crude way of getting people to, it's like the grading system again. We're back stuck in that. So yet, um, your question is a good one, because if you're going in the wrong direction, then you can be sincere and put in lots of effort. If you want to go to the North Pole, you have to be aimed towards the North Pole, not the South Pole. And all the exertion and energy is going to come to naught. So the question is, what do you want? Okay, the Buddha makes it kind of simple, though not easy. He's saying, all I'm teaching is suffering and the end of suffering. Okay, And it's not down the pike. In given moments when you're suffering, we're learning how to relate to that suffering, to take care of it in a new way. So uh, I would say this, in terms of all the different practices, that takes time till you find, uh, for example, there's no practice for everyone. There really isn't. Okay. Uh, breath awareness has been very helpful for me, so I use it a lot. But finally, I, I'm not, I get typecast as, you know, Mr. Breath. It's not true. <laughs> it's, one, it's just a technique. It's a good technique for some people. It was good for me. Mostly what I do is I don't watch the breath. I watch my mind and my body. You know, and the, now and then I'll, I'll, I'll draw upon it. But, and for other people, they shouldn't be, they need a different technique. You find out by, it's sort of, you do have to shop a bit. Sometimes. It sounds like there's kind of an experimentation period yes. where you learn what works for you. Exactly. Also, it changes over time. Uh, what I'm doing now, I couldn't have done when I first started. And fortunately, I had someone who gave me good help, and then, and then that kind of wore itself out. It's just like, you know, I don't need my cowboy outfit anymore. <laughs> okay? so, it was, so that part. Uh, I would say any practice that helps you develop wakefulness is good. All that Buddha means is uh, it's one who's awake. So that any, any practice, you name it, if it helps you become a little bit more awake, then I would say that sounds good to me. And then see if that wakefulness is helping you, the quality of your life. To me, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The Buddha expected you to test these teachings, not take it as a new belief. Oh, I'm a Buddhist. There is no such thing as a self. Da 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 da, and you feel good, and you have a nice community, and you're connected. But it's the same old baloney. Is it true? And the Buddha would really appreciate people who doubted his teachings and were willing to try it to find out and to prove it in their own life. And I hope we do that here. I know we try. Yeah, please. Yeah, but it's not either or, but again, it's different. Some people, uh, reading a lot helps them. Some people don't need to read very much. You don't need to know a lot. You need to know the basics and then do it. The main book to read is this book. Exactly. Yeah, so do it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, don't worry. Okay, good. Yeah, uh, every, but don't, don't, uh, here's what tends to happen. We make our way, we start judging people. So, okay, I was a big reader, uh, uh, addicted. I would use that word. My first teacher, there's no God in Buddhism, so I was going to say God bless him, but, you know, it's also no not God. It's just non-theistic. It doesn't say there isn't a God or there is. It just doesn't, de- that's not what, it's not dealt with that way. Okay, um, he was a Korean Zen master, and some of you have heard this. 
and we were on a plane flying over. I, I was practicing, going to practice in Korea for a year at different monasteries in, in Japan. And we were on the plane sitting next to you on our way to Tokyo. And I pull out my little carry-on bag, and I have all these juicy Dharma books. You know, and he said, looks at me and says, what's that? And I said, oh, look at this. This one, I'm going to be reading this, the Buddha. You know, and he said, like, no. He says, your problem is you merely know everything already. You know, this way, kind of knowing. He says, no reading for one year. No. Now, can you just hear this? I don't know if you've met people like this. New York Jewish intellectuals? That's like somebody telling someone to go cold turkey who shoots up. And I went through those kinds of, uh, you know, not exactly shaking, but incredible misery. But I did do it. And it, it, after a while, it led to just, it was wonderful. I'm one of the best teachers I had over there. This is for your, you know, uh, someone else might need to read a little bit to get some direction. Uh, the, one of the best teachers I had over there was illiterate. And he thought the world was flat. And he, everyone wanted to work with him. He was radiant. And by our standards, he was an ignorant man because he had no knowledge, very little, and he couldn't even sign his name. From a point of view of wisdom, he was, uh, uh, he was not, a, not ignorant at all, and somebody could have three PhDs and from this point of view be ignorant of themselves. And that would be a different kind of ignorance, I would put it. Of course. Um, you know, like, I feel like when you're, especially when you know someone well, like, your conversation is sort of based in, like, an acknowledged play of, like, ego or whatever. Like, you're joking, you're, like, testing things out with each other. Of course. Whatever. It's, like, very dynamic. And I'm wondering, I oftentimes, like, when you're trying to find like, sort of that peace within relationships where you can be real, like, finding, like, a way to remove that's not, like, a separation or a condescension or a, you know, like, to be... In it and like love, in adoration of the person's quirks and all, and, and still have this room where you can sort of like peacefully interact. I, I, well, see if I understand. If I don't, come back. You know. um, I'm going to generalize your question because it's about all of us. Isn't relationship a large part of life? Don't we? People, they're not going to go away. Here we are. Okay. So, and we, this is where we fall down. We don't know how to live with each other. That's the tragedy of the, We know how to fly. We know how to go under the ocean. We don't know how to live on the earth at all with each other. Sad. Okay. So at least there have always been individuals who do. They've learned it. They've learned it by, by doing something like this, not necessarily this exact practice. Okay. Relationship can be a mirror. And when you use relationship as a mirror, it becomes, in quotes, a spiritual practice can become. I don't like the word spiritual, but I have to, something that goes beyond psychological. Okay. So that let's say you're with another person. Uh, we have reactions to each other. And if, if you start practicing, awareness starts to become more and more natural. And it's not just about external, but it's more and more you're in touch with yourself even while you're in the midst of social life. You don't lose touch with yourself. So you're with, let's say, another person. And they say or do something, and it brings something up in you. Now, what I heard in your question is an ideal, you know, of being a loving person who's at peace inside. Okay. Uh, you can have that as an ideal and then try to always be a loving person who's at peace inside. 
but I think that will be very, very limited if you don't take care of the fact that you're not at peace. It's, are you fully at peace inside? That's why you're here, right? Because you're not. Okay. So let's say, uh, let me act that out. Now I'm, I'm with you, and you say something like, that was, uh, he said it was a very good talk, thank you, but I, uh, I was embarrassed to even be up here. I've never, I've heard Dharma talks, this is disgraceful, and I'm sending a note to the Buddha, to the Pope, you know, okay. Um, and, and, suddenly, and I feel like, it was a very good talk, you know, what do you mean? You know, uh, I've spent, I, what do you, you know, okay. I can then try to be right, or I can then annihilate you, try to. And then you can kind of shrink or hit me back, and then everyone will get him. But if you're practicing, what I would feel is I would feel my defensiveness. I would feel like the hurt. I would feel that there's still someone in here who can be hurt by not being complimented. Like I liked what you had to say. <laughs> he, yeah, <laughs> he's a very beautiful person. <laughs> you, I'm not so sure about. <laughs> Okay, so the real peace comes from beginning to make peace with the absence of peace. In other words, so that the, this mindfulness would be in touch with how perturbed you are, how upset you are. And of course, in small ways, that's happening. That's me. That's ego got hurt. Okay, as you, your ability to improve, to do that improves, that starts to wither away, and then it's replaced by something, a, a different degree of peace. The more mature it becomes, the more peace there is. Uh, it, and then what comes out of that, see, if you would answer from that, it's a reaction, it's mechanical. You can't help it, and I can't help it. But if you, if you, don't, if you don't act it out or repress it, see, w- what choice do we have? One is, I scream at you, and the other is, uh, I want to protect my image as a mature Dharma teacher. And you say, this was the worst talk you ever heard. You're imba-. And I'm saying, like, oh, you really do well. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, you know, and the Buddha said, and, like, uh, tell me more, abuse me more. It doesn't matter because I'm a very wise and mature person. I've been practicing for a And that would be denial, okay? This is neither denial or acting out, where I hit you or I do a, a, prete- a pretense. What it is is I feel the hurt but I haven't lost touch with you. Now, if it's an intimate relationship, sometimes you can share these things with the other person. But little by little, you take the power out of that, and it's replaced by a different state of consciousness, with, which, as that starts to ripen, is a kind of inner peace. Uh, when I said that the silence is not a good word for it, love is, I would say, finally, this form of practice of meditation and any real form of meditation, authentic, it's not just some uh, stress reduction. Although if you define stress reduction a certain way, that's profound too. It's an explosion of love. Because all the love you could ever want is in your heart. It's already there. Even if you didn't have a nice mommy and daddy, even if you... uh, But for many people, the outer conditions are so damaged that it's like a jungle between... They don't have access to this. Meditation is seeing through all those obstacles that obscure our original nature. It's sometimes called that. Buddha nature, original nature, true nature. There are many names for it. Uh, When that Indian master said, when he was asked, who are you? And he says, I have no idea. What he meant, he knows he's not an idea. That's just a word or picture. He's being, just pure being. Okay. And then from that, uh, so now... 
let's not make it all or nothing. A relationship, any relationship, has an ongoing history, and if both people have enough love of each other to begin with, they can grow together, and they can really help each other grow, but they're going to have to see through certain fixations that they have of how, how they've treated, let's say, uh, men and women all their life, and that just gets repeated in this relationship. And so it allows for some fresh ground to be broken. Do you see what I... Yeah. One last... Uh, anything? Please. Yes. Uh, now, in one sense, suffering is suffering. Okay, what prompts it varies. Uh, but you see, throw away all the words. Where are you? You, you, the, yeah. Okay, it's all these books about, you know, that conceptualize and all that. The practice is awareness of the way it is. Okay, so that let's say you find yourself suffering. Sometimes there's a loneliness that is... Uh, it can't be explained. You have loving people around you. You're, you love. Everything's fine. And it's a kind of existential loneliness that maybe we all have, each human. It doesn't, you know, how you explain it or how you account for how it got there isn't as important as your awareness of it. You see? So no matter what it, that suffering is, uh, that one might be much more refined and subtle and also deep. Uh, not as accessible as obvious suffering when you, you're greedy and you don't get what you want. Okay, but practice is practicing with what's there. Uh, if I can put this in a, another context, one of the problems for us humans, all of us, is that self-deception is alive and well. In other words, we are very, very able to fool ourselves. And we don't know we're fooling ourselves because otherwise it wouldn't be self-deception. You know, it's, in other words, we think we're being honest. We think we... Many adults, if you stop someone, do you know yourself? You know, say someone in their 50s, something like that. Oh, yeah, you know, I've been around the block, you know, I know. And they do in a certain sense. Uh, are, you, are you still suffering? Oh, come on, of course I am. Okay, so there's knowing yourself and there's knowing yourself. There's, there's like a, the self-knowing has a depth to it. It's an interior journey. And what I'm saying is, like Hokusai, I love that journey. Okay. Now, meditation, and it's not all fun and games, because what you see is Adolf Hitler in there sometimes. And you see Mother Teresa too, and you see neither of them. Whatever is there, and images you have of yourself get shattered and fall to pieces. Yeah, so until you start really valuing getting free, then no matter what it is you ask me, that's between you and freedom. But if you, if you develop the ability to open to it, and to receive it, and let it be what it is, don't try to fix it. That's what we're learning. How to, the art of pure seeing. Pure seeing has no goal other than the seeing. That's why it's often likened to a mirror. It's not seeing in order to, let's say if there's some pain, it's not seeing in order to not feel the loneliness. If you have a little business deal like that, all right, I'll watch this loneliness, but it better go away. Uh, why do I say that in a New York accent? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> uh, Well, wrong in what way? 
Okay, who makes important and unimportant? You see, in the world of clear seeing, everything is just what it is. Yes, but it's something that comes up again and again and gets checked and rechecked and checked and rechecked. That's thinking. That, that's thinking. But every time it comes up, it's fresh. Because it's happening now. The rest is memories of it. That's how you know it comes up again and again. Because you can remember, oh, we've seen this one before. But it's not exactly the same one. It's in that family. I understand what you're saying. Okay, but the art of pure observation is not, has no thinking in it. It's, it's not like, oh, I've seen this before. Now, to begin with, your mind will do that. It's going to have a story about it, and it'll have a name for it, and it'll even want, is this envy or is this resentment? What is, you're, the, not, you're not supposed to have anything in your life that if you didn't experience, you would, go, you would die feeling like you had to fully live. I don't fully, help me understand that. See, the first one is not supposed to's. Longing to be a mother, okay? Yes. No, longing to be a mother. That's just an attachment. That's just a... Oh, I would want to trivialize that. I, I, I didn't... You, you'll never find me saying that. <laughs> See, it's better if you make it concrete. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Let's say you yearn to be a mom, and so far it's not happened. Okay. And there's a yearning. Uh, and we can go into, well, it's natural, biological urge, that's how the human race stays. Uh, you know, it feels like more than that. Okay, whatever. More or less. Let the, let the biologists and philosophers argue it out. There it is, and there's some suffering in regard, right? right? Okay. It's, no one's saying you shouldn't feel that way. What I'm saying is, can you be sensitive to the feelings that you have? It's not telling you that you're supposed to have any, be any particular way. It's saying that whatever way you are in a given moment, the art that we're learning is how to be aware of it as it is, without judging it, without trying to... Okay, so that what you'd feel is, there's a yearning to have a child, because you don't, you have, right as of now, you don't have one. Okay, and it's held on to ferociously. Okay. And there's a lot of suffering there. Okay. Now, as you look at that, does that help you get a child? It's just, it's, no, it's just, uh, do you see what I'm getting at? So little by little, I'm not saying that you, that you shouldn't feel that attachment. That's, you're a very bad yogi. Uh, <laughs> but what can happen is you can take a lot of the steam out of it. And, for, for example, people often ask, well, how can, um, let's say, uh, a couple living together and they love each other, how can there not be attachment? Personally, if you feel you're, you, you love someone, whether it's a parent or a child or a partner, uh, I haven't met anyone yet where there isn't attachment. Okay. So, you see, a lot of the teachings come from monastics. We we're back to the people with those folks with the bowls. Maybe you're right. Let's just stay in the palace. <laughs> <laughs> what are we running around looking for trouble? We had a good life in the palace there. Okay. Um, get me back to reality. We, uh, okay. But he had oh, yeah. for the lay disciples. What? He had, he had different teachings for the lay people anyway. Yes. But, uh, yes, exactly. Okay, but let's, so let's stay with this. You find, uh, let's say, uh, love between two people who are, live together and love each other. I haven't met anyone who doesn't have attachment. Then you come and you learn this thing, and then you feel guilty, like, I have attachment. Okay, now, there's a difference between love and clinging. 
Okay? You can't then decide, well, I'm not going to cling, I'm just going to have the love part. It won't work. You're going to get into a struggle with it. But what you can do is feel that extra holding. And as you begin to understand it, some of it gets weaker. You also begin to see that it's not exactly the best way to love. Often, if a parent loves a child a certain way, they're holding on to them too much. Their judgment is impaired. You know, they, they're worrying. Do you see what I'm getting at? Okay, so forget about perfection. Is You start to understand, and you can see there really is a difference between real love is a very powerful force. I'm not talking about sentimental love, like, I love you, booby, if you leave me, it's all over. You know, I don't mean that. Uh, real love is as, is, is as strong as death. It's a, it's a real energy in the universe, and there are people who have it, who really know how to love. Okay, period. Whew. Okay, uh, the practice can gets you in contact with some of that, but it can be all mushed up with clinging and attachment, not wanting to be left alone and abandonment and all that. Okay, but you can practice with that in a gentle, affectionate way, and not with the goal of never being attached, but by learning. The emphasis here is on learning, and you begin to see that the yearning to have a child is probably intelligent and good because it'll help you do the things that you will, I hope, have a child. Okay, But then, do you have to suffer so much? Uh, maybe not. Do you see what I'm getting at? And so the practice, by being with it, you'll be able to see the difference between uh, a yearning to be a mom and then seeing uh, that there's some extra suffering that doesn't necessarily help produce a child uh, and it compromises the quality of your daily life in, in this moment, and it might even make you less able to, when you have a child, you know, to be, uh, because that, that quality is perhaps poisoning you a little bit. Do you see what I'm getting at? So don't set it up as, as all or nothing. And start where you are always, and where you are is you have a strong yearning, it's not bad, and maybe there's some things accompanying it that are uh, when you see them, they start to lose some of their power, and then it lightens up a bit, and you still want to have a child, and you do what, you, what it takes to have a child. Does that make sense? Okay, could we have a few moments of silence? Let's not be too hard on ourselves. We're just human, you know. And that's where we start. And then see if awareness can improve the quality of our life as we come to understand what it means to be human as we live out our life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.